Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Howdy there, friends. I had a good idea you'd be back tonight. What's better after fresh meat than a little bad fruit? Oh, that's just a little wordplay, Chester. If you're hungry, go find yourself some seafood or something. I tell you, puns are just lost on these creatures. Come on in, friend. You're always good for a little repartee. Mmm. Oh, yeah. I needed that. So tonight we're bringing back W.B. Stickle, whom you might remember from our season one finale, The Capsule. I always seem to remember he scared the death of Teletubbies. <laughs> Good luck, man. <Ooh. coughs> oh, fuck. <coughs> uh, anyway, smoke them if you've got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a tell to tell. Betafest. Zilregamaror, mon ami. Oh. Hey, you're listening to the standard edition of this program. To get instant access to ad-free versions of all our episodes and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click patrons in the upper menu. Sign up today. It's a great way to show your support, and you'll get a whole lot for it. And authors, send your scary stories to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If you're selected, you'll get that full treatment. Shit. Well, thank you, happy redneck guy. And we're off. From returning author W.B. Stickle. We've got a tale of a cruise ship catastrophe, and I'm not talking about a little motion sickness or the steam table trots. Some things even a voucher won't make up for. So without further delay, I give you, from author W.B. Stickle, Bad Fruit. Scaling what had become his favorite sand dune, Landis made a concerted effort to excise all the troubling thoughts churning inside his skull. The dune was no place for fretting or worrying about things beyond one's control. It was a place for soul healing and mind clearing. A happy place amongst all the death and uncertainty. Reaching the dune's apex, Landis got himself into a comfortable sitting position 
then stared out across the vast glittering seascape that surrounded the island. The sight of it made quick work of the tension that had built up inside him, causing all the stress and anxiety he was feeling to melt away like ice in the Sahara. Mesmerizing, isn't it? Startled by the unexpected query, Landis sat bolt upright and jerked his head left to see who'd disturbed him. To his immense surprise, he found Mary Simmons, the Canadian journalist he had met the second night at sea, standing at the base of the dune, an awkward expression on her cute sunburnt face. Aside from the heavy bags under her eyes, she looked exactly as she had several days prior, uncommonly beautiful with her naturally warm skin tone, striking green eyes, and long curly hair. Oh, Landa said, a mixture of anxiety and bitterness bubbling inside him. What are you, uh, doing here? Well, Mary said, clasping her hands together sheepishly. We just got done gathering up a bunch of materials from the jungle to build a new SOS sign, which we did on the other end of the beach. She motioned to Landis's right to show him her handiwork, but Landis kept his gaze on her. In any case, I worked up a pretty good sweat doing that and was thinking about taking a dip. Then I saw you up here and figured we could talk, if you're so inclined. Doing his best to keep the anxiety and bitterness at bay, Landis focused on her ensemble, which consisted of a white blouse, Daisy Duke-style shorts, and a pair of purple flip-flops. You find a bathing suit, or do you plan on swimming in your clothes? Neither, Mary said. Skinny dipping all the way. Landis frowned at her. Kidding. I have a bathing suit on underneath. Funny. Were your swim plans all you wanted to discuss? Actually... I've been wanting to come see you since we arrived here. Things have just been so crazy. Landis bobbed his head at that. Between scrambling for their lives after the explosions rocked the cruise ship, finding their way to this island in the dark, coping with the immense loss of life, and setting themselves up until help arrived, crazy fairly well encapsulated the last 48 hours. Yeah, they have. He scooped up a handful of sand and absently let it drain through his fingers. So, what did you want to talk about? Come on, Brendan, Mary said, using his first name instead of his last, which he preferred. You know. Right, the high seas luau. He gazed back out at the glittering water, recalling the huge mixer. Being his first cruise, Landis hadn't been sure what to expect, so he decided to show up early. Mary, coincidentally, had done the same, heading straight to the bar in order to get ahead of the crowd. They ended up arriving at the same time, and Landis offered to buy her a drink. Mary had readily accepted with the caveat that she'd be allowed to order for both of them. Landis said sure, and soon they were drinking Long Island iced teas and chatting like old friends. One drink led to two, and before long they moved to their own table for a little more privacy. Thereafter, conversation flowed easily, leading Landis to believe real chemistry existed between them. He had been on the verge of asking her to slow dance when, quite out of the blue, several of her friends had showed up and whisked her away, leaving Landis wondering what the hell he had done wrong. Things had gone to shit shortly after that, depriving him and his bruised ego the chance to confront her about it. Until now. To set the record straight, My friends didn't rescue me from anything that night. 
They pulled me away to deal with some stupid drama between a married couple we came with. Had nothing at all to do with you. Landis locked eyes with her, felt himself soften. Seriously? Because up until they arrived, I really liked the way things were going. Seriously, and I liked the way things were going too. I just wish I had come to tell you sooner. Knees beginning to ache from sitting in the same position too long. Landis shifted around in the sand, straightening his legs. So, uh, did the married couple ever resolve their drama? Mary's gaze fell to the sand and lingered there momentarily. No, it continued into the early morning when the explosions went off. They were near the third one that took out most of the lifeboats. I wound up being the only one from my group to make it to the island. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, Linda said. That was stupid of me. Mary shook her head. No, it's okay. Her gaze reconnected with his. You know, I feel a bit silly talking to you from down here. Like a peasant beseeching their laird for more land or whatever. Mind if I join you? Sure. Plenty of room up here. Excellent, my lord, Mary said, doing a little curtsy. She backed up a few paces, then bounded forward, scaling the dune in nine hearty strides. At the top, she plopped down beside Landis and took a few beats to catch her breath. I love your shirt, by the way. Indicating his black Foo Fighters tee. Everlong is like one of my all-time faves. Landis beamed at this revelation. He couldn't have agreed more. Yeah. Mary went on. That line about not stopping when I say when? Mm-hmm. Jeez, lady, where have you been all my life? Mary didn't miss a beat. Hello, I've waited here for you. Ever long. They sang in unison, giggling at their collective corniness. After the giggling subsided, Mary stood back and took in the surrounding view. Not bad, mon ami. I can see why you like it up here so much. Yeah, Landis said, remaining seated. It definitely speaks to me. Far more than I thought it would. That's right. You mentioned at the luau that you hadn't spent much time near the ocean. Landis sagged his head in mock embarrassment. Sadly, no. My family took a trip to Lake Superior once when I was a kid, but that was as close as I'd gotten to it prior to landing in Miami last week. My folks weren't much for traveling outside our little slice of Nebraska. Mary nodded. I also recall you mentioning relocating somewhere more coastal, right before my friends really interrupted us. Never did get to hear you elaborate. Landis got to his feet and stretched his back. <clears throat> Don't know. A lot of places sound good, but to me it makes the most sense to choose some place with a lot of techie jobs. Oh yeah, you're one of those cybersecurity nerds. Guilty as charged. Okay, so what places are those? Well, on the west coast, there's San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle. You got Tampa and Miami down south, Norfolk and Savannah out east, and Honolulu way out in Hawaii. Don't forget Vancouver and Halifax. Sure, sure. I always wanted to visit Australia. No, silly. Canada. Canada has beaches? Yes, it has beaches. Are you... Mary paused there and looked at him. Oh, you're fucking with me. Landis grinned. Yes, I'm fucking with you. I know you're proud of your Canuck roots. 
Mary pursed her lips. You could do worse. I'm sure. Waving a dismissive hand his way, Mary rotated to her left, facing inland. Anyway, she said, nodding towards the wild vegetation that occupied most of the island's surface. This place wouldn't be such a bad option either. You know, if it wasn't so remote and so devoid of other people. Landis joined her in surveying the island's lush greenery. This is going to sound a little geeky, but did you ever watch the show Lost from the early 2000s? I'm Canadian, not Amish, Mary said. Of course I watched it. Great show. Stupid ending. That's debatable. It isn't. But I see what you're getting at. This island resembles the one on the show. Only there aren't any mountains here. And the plants seem like they're on fucking steroids. Landis saw what she meant. The vegetation didn't just flourish here. It raged with a hellish intensity. The massive junipers and palms looming like sleeping giants. The tangles of fern, acanthus, and ginger battling for sunlight beneath the thick canopy. The shoots of creeper and liana streaming this way and that, weaving an intricate web of leaf and vine amongst the droves of orchids, azaleas, and holly. So this isn't normal then, Landis said. Wow, Mary replied. First ocean and first jungle? First sunken ship, too. Heck of a trip, huh? Heck of a trip. Landis noticed movement to their right and saw that some of their fellow castaways had begun to congregate in the boulder-laden clearing they used for group assemblies. With the morning shelter-building project finished and their allotted break time over, it was on to the next task that Blanchard, the cruise ship's first officer and self-appointed leader here, had dreamed up. You a part of that? Landis inquired. Mary regarded the gathering castaways. Hmm... Possibly. You? Depends. You know what Blanchard has in mind? Not sure. Although I did hear Hadley and Stevens talking about taking a raft out to where the ship went down. Blanchard seems to like the idea. Hadley and Stevens were the ship's staff officer and chief engineer. Landis scowled. Really? Why? From what I heard, they want to see if someone can swim down to the wreckage and recover some things. Steven seems to think he can do it. That's crazy. They won't even know where to look. No one knows how far out we were, and even if they did, the ship is gone. Bottom of the ocean. Brad may seem a bit fishy. Those bug eyes. What do you think, Graves' disease? But I didn't see any gills on his fucking neck. Mary batted his arm playfully. You're awful. There's a scuba kid on one of the lifeboats. Even so... I just think we're better off concentrating on the food situation instead of silly errands like that. It was no secret that food supplies were running low and their fishing efforts had proved negligible. If we're here a couple more days, people are going to start getting real hungry real fast. I think everyone understands that. Hopefully we won't be here that long. Someone had to have heard Blanchard's sat phone plea. The first of the three explosions that eventually sunk the ship had occurred in the communications room, taking away the crew's ability to initiate a traditional mayday. Blanchard fortunately had the presence of mind amid the ensuing chaos to grab a sat phone on his way to the bridge crew's lifeboat. That's the hope. It would have been nice if he hadn't dropped a stupid thing in the water before getting a response, but that's the universe for you. Indeed it is. 
I know he feels rotten about it, just as he feels rotten about you. Landis peered at her. Me? All I know is he's mentioned you several times in the last few days, saying he doesn't get why you don't want to be a part of the team. It really seems to bug him. Grumbling to himself, Landis edged his way to the bottom of the dune and walked back out to where the dry and wet sand converged. After the ship had gone kablooey and they all ended up on the island, Blanchard and his boys had rapidly established a pecking order among the ship's survivors, with the boat's officers at the top, the ship workers at second tier, and the hundred-plus passengers at the bottom. Landis thought it made sense and was happy being a worker bee. Blanchard, however, had other designs and repeatedly tried to draft him into the upper echelon. When Landis resisted, Blanchard upped the pressure, going to the point of insulting him in front of the others for not being a team player. Hey, Mary said, catching up to Landis. Did I say something wrong? Landis watched as the ebbing tide slid up the shore and lapped at his toes. No, no. It's just they keep pestering me about it and I wish they'd fucking stop. They're doing fine without my services. Why Blanchard even cares is beyond me. Is it? Huh? Come on, Brendan. Mary said. Everyone knows you saved his life the night the ship went down. His life and the whole damn bridge crew's lives. That's why he cares. Landis let out an irritated huff and ran a hand through his thick swath of black hair. She was right, of course. When the bridge crew's lifeboat came apart during the third explosion, Landis had jumped in the water and rescued the three officers who had survived the impact. It should have been four officers, but the blast had incinerated the poor captain. Taking Landis's silence as quiet acquiescence, Mary removed her white blouse and jean shorts and dropped them in the dry sand. Underneath, she had on a stunning light blue bikini that revealed a taut runner's body. You know, she said, heading for the water. I think I'll go for that dip now. So, not attending that gathering then? They don't need me. So saying, Mary slipped beneath the water's surface. Fifteen long seconds later, she came up for air and gave him a thumbs up. Returning the gesture, Landis backed up a few paces and sat down in the warm, dry sand. As he watched Mary frolic about in the sparkling blue waters, it occurred to him that he genuinely liked the woman, more than he had liked anyone in a long time, and unless he completely misread the situation, it seemed she genuinely liked him too. Interested to see where things went from here, Landis hooked his fingers behind his head and lay back, resting his head on a natural sand pillow. Before long, his eyes drooped shut, and the sound of waves sloshing carried him off to sleep. Brendan! Wake up! Landis opened his eyes to find Mary standing over him, kicking his foot. Get up, sleepyhead! Something's happened! <sighs> what? he murmured. He had been dreaming of the night the ship had gone down, of the explosions, the chaos, the crazy ordeal in the water, and frenzied images still echoed in his mind. <sighs> What's the matter? The party Blanchard sent out earlier is back. So? Apparently they found some food. I'm going to see what's up. You should come too. Landis rubbed his face. <sighs> Fuck. All right. Mary grabbed his hand, helped him up, and stalked off towards the group. 
Reluctantly, Landis straggled after her, his eyes locked on her wet, shifting buttocks. So nice to have you back, Brendan, Blanchard said as Landis and Mary joined the other survivors. All done staring at the pretty ocean, are we? Maybe, Landis fired back. You all done being a dickwad? Groans and chuckles issued from the others in equal measure. Blanchard was a tall, hefty man with a large, bald head. Even without an officious uniform on to draw one's attention, he was a beacon in a crowd. He peered disapprovingly at Landis, then glanced at Stevens, who had led the team sent to explore the far side of the island. Stevens has an announcement, he said to everyone. Stevens, a skinnier Steve Buscemi type, de-shouldered the backpack he was carrying and unzipped it. All right. So about half a mile in, we came across an acre's worth of trees with what looks like papaya growing on them. He removed the three green-yellow orbs from the bag and set them on the ground. Anyone tried them? Blanchard asked. Hey, all four of us. Lou Moncrief replied. Lou worked as a bartender at the ship's ocean bar. Landis had met him the first night out. Seemed like a good enough guy. And we're all fine. The two others from the recon team nodded. Landis didn't know them by name. All right, change of plans, Blanchard announced. We'll skip getting the wreckage site for now and take about 20 people back into the jungle to collect as much of the fruit as we can. Any volunteers? Many hands went up, including Mary's. Blanchard selected 17 of them, plus Mary. What do you say? He asked Landis. Mary arched her eyebrows invitingly. Ah, uh, sure, Landis said. Happy to help. Wonderful, Blanchard replied. He indicated the large pile of luggage gathered under one of the shelters they had built earlier. If you please, grab a bag or two each and we'll get to it. The volunteers migrated to the shelter and retrieved their bags. Blanchard, Stevens, and Hadley did the same. Morgan, the hotel manager, joined them. Mary selected a military duffel bag from the heap. Think of it as an adventure, she told Landis. Pretend we're on Lost. Landis grabbed the blue suitcase and matching garment bag. All right, he said. I can be Jack and you can be Kate. He looked around. But who's Locke and who's Ben? Blanchard would be Locke for sure. Morgan would be Ben, she whispered. I know he's black, but with those glasses, he's a dead ringer. Landis laughed because she was spot on. And let's go with you being Sawyer instead of Jack. I mean, you've got Jack-like looks and everything, but you're more the Sawyer type. She slung the duffel bag over her shoulder and headed for the others who were already heading into the jungle. Landis grinned after her. Most of the women he knew who had watched the show found the Sawyer character sexy as hell, which he thought boded well for him. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. They were a quarter mile in when they came across the first patch of blackened trees. What the hell is this? Said Dennis Manning, one of the ship's musicians and owner of the biggest afro Landis had ever seen on a white dude. Stevens approached a tree and gestured towards the ring of sooty undergrowth that lay beneath them. Yeah, we saw a bunch of this earlier. It's all over the place. Fires ignited by lightning strikes, my guess. Bound to happen out here. Blanchard looked mildly displeased that Stevens hadn't mentioned this before. He stood next to the far skinnier man and examined the charred vegetation. Burns look fresh, except... He pointed at a series of new branches growing from the trees and the shoots of vines scaling the blackened husks. If the burns was fresh, I doubt those vines would be growing all over them. Not yet, at least. Stevens shrugged. Storms a lot out here. Plants grow quick when they have plenty of water. Y'all should see my lawn back in Savannah after it rains a couple days. Blanchard scrutinized the fresh growth. I suppose. Awesome, Morgan declared, kicking at the charred log. Mr. Saw, now can we get on with it? What's the rush, sir? Nick Hadley said. Got you a hot date or something? Hadley was the youngest of the hotel stewards and conducted himself as if he had been plucked straight out of the forties with his side-parted hair and Bogart-esque mannerisms. No, young fella, Morgan said. Getting hungry is all. A few of the others said they were getting hungry as well, and Blanchard proposed they move on. As they trundled through the underbrush, Landis noted that they were actually walking over a thick layer of soot. The bottoms of his sneakers were caked with the stuff. He made a comment about it, which Stevens dismissed as expected given the number of storms and lightning strikes the island likely took. The look on Blanchard's face suggested he thought Stevens was full of shit. When they got to the grove, an area markedly different from the palms, bamboos, and junipers filling out the rest of the jungle, Stevens raised his arms exultantly towards the tops of the new trees. Here we are. Beautiful, aren't they? Magnificent! Lou Moncrief agreed. The other two from the original party murmured their assent. A bare-chested volunteer who sported a head full of sandy dreads edged in for a closer look. Yo, I ain't so sure this shit is papaya. Papayas are smaller and softer. What is it then? Blanchard asked. Mm, a cousin of the papaya, maybe, Dread Guy said. You know, it's funny finding it here in the first place. Papaya is native to the Americas, not Africa or Europe. We were headed for the Mediterranean, yo, so I'm betting we're somewhere near northern Africa. I wonder what it's doing here. Doesn't really matter much in our situation, Blanchard replied, as long as it's edible. He turned to Stevens. So, there's about an acre of this fruit? 
Give or take, said Stevens. We walked around it before. Doesn't really walk through it, though. Blanchard's large brow furrowed. Why not? Stevens pointed at the trees. Guess we were too focused on getting some of it down. Blanchard looked at Morgan. Mike, do me a favor. Take Brendan and Mrs. Simmons here and check the rest of this out. Bring her duffel bag in case you find anything else. We'll fill up the rest of the bags you brought. Morgan nodded. You bet. But first... He picked up a felled fruit and hurled it at one of the clusters in the canopy above. The fruit struck home, knocking three of its brethren loose. Morgan grabbed one, pulled out a Swiss army knife from his pocket, and signaled for Landis and Mary to follow him. As they disappeared into the papaya grove, Landis heard Blanchard ask Stevens what the hell was wrong with them. Stevens claimed he didn't know what Blanchard meant, adding that he felt great. He was just a little hungry was all, like everyone else. Landis and Mary chatted quietly as they traipsed along after Morgan. Morgan, meanwhile, wandered ahead, seemingly more concerned with nibbling his fruit than whether or not they were keeping up. He did, however, offer them a taste at one point, but both Landis and Mary declined. Landis' stomach hadn't been right since the ship had sunk, and Mary just wasn't hungry. Suit yourselves. Minutes onward, he strayed out of sight. Mary and Landis hurried to catch up. They found him at a dead stop, standing at the edge of a large depression in the jungle floor. The depression, more of a crater in Landis' opinion, looked to be about a hundred feet wide and twenty feet deep. It was filled with a latticework of leaf and vine, beneath which lay a bunch of white sticks and shell fragments. Landis drew up to the pit's edge, knelt and studied its contents. Mary went down on her haunches beside him. Wait, Landis said. Are those... Fuck me sideways, they are, Mary confirmed. Morgan adjusted his glasses and surveyed the mounds of remains. Skulls, rib cages, femurs, pelvises. I'm no anthropologist, but those look human to me. The sentiment hung in the air and the three of them gawked in stunned silence. At last, Morgan spoke up, instructing Landis to go get Blanchard. Just him, nobody else. And be cool about it, here. Right now, go. Landis turned and ran back the way they had come. He returned ten minutes later with a sweaty, stone-faced Blanchard in tow. As they came upon the pit, Blanchard demanded to know what was going on. Morgan said nothing, just pointed. Blanchard stared into the pit for a full minute, taking it all in. Jesus, Harold Christ. There's got to be at least, what, a hundred of them? Two hundred? Where'd they all come from? An old slave ship? Ventured Mary. Well, pirates, Morgan said. I feel mighty silly saying it, but it's possible that pirates from the olden days used this place as a dumping ground for their victims. Wouldn't pirates just dump their victims at sea? Landis said. Blanchard knelt at the pit's edge. I don't see any clothes. Yeah, Morgan said. Mary and I noticed that too. It's bizarre. That, Mary added. And it appears that some of the bones are way older than the others. She pointed to a cluster at the pit center, which seemed more weathered than the ones near the edge. Like those? Is it me, or do they look... New. Blanchard was inclined to agree. 
Could it be different groups of people? Landis queried, not liking the implications. Blanchard stood up, closed his eyes, and began massaging the lids. All right, listen up. I mean really listen. He opened his eyes. As bizarre as this is, and I grant you it's fucking bizarre, it cannot be our priority right now. When rescue comes, sure, but until that time, we have bigger fish to fry, namely getting everyone fed, which means we're the only four that knows about this. Understood? Morgan nodded. Landis and Mary exchanged a dubious look, but also nodded their concurrence. Good, Blanchard said, and thank you. Now, let's get back and help round up some more fruit before someone comes looking. Landis pondered the jungle around them. There was still much of it they hadn't searched yet. He asked Blanchard if he and Mary could continue with their reconnaissance, pointing out there might be different fruit nearby, and they'd never know if they didn't look. Blanchard was reluctant, especially with what they had just found, but Landis pressed him. I've hunted and camped with my dad since I was a little kid. This is nothing. Blanchard sighed and glanced at his watch. Fine. Just meet us back here at the beach in an hour. No longer. Mary gave him a mock salute. You got it, boss. Blanchard turned and he and Morgan started back towards the others. An hour, he said, disappearing into the lush greenery. Halfway into their allotted time, Landis and Mary came upon a small clearing in the papaya grove and opted to take a short break there. Man, I thought for sure we'd find something cool out here, Landis said, taking a seat on a fallen juniper. But nothing. A freshwater spring would have been nice, Mary said. The water rations from the lifeboats are nearly gone. Landis licked his dry lips. Amen to that, lady. It's a problem. He looked at her and smiled. What? Nothing. It's just that you were right. This is like an adventure. Mary responded with a sultry grin and approached him. While she'd put her Daisy Dukes back on prior to setting out with the group, she'd left her blouse back at the beach. Coming to see the light, are we? She said, drawing close. Landis remained still. His cornhusker shorts suddenly became uncomfortable in the front. I take it you wanted to get me alone for some reason? She went on. Landis's mind went in a thousand directions. Perhaps. Mary gently straddled him, pressing her body hard against his. Well, somebody's excited down there. To be honest, I've been imagining this for days. Me too. They leered at each other then and let their instincts take over. By Landis's watch, they had made it back to the beach in a hair over Blanchard's hour. Both were giddy about what had just happened, but took care to act normal when they emerged from the jungle. They found Stevens and Hadley sitting amongst a large group of passengers and ship workers, telling jokes and eating the gathered fruit. Everyone seemed happy and festive. Not seeing Blanchard, Landis waved at Stevens and got his attention. Brendan, the skinny man said. You made it back. Anything else out there to report? Nada, Landis said. Oh, well, worth a shot. Stevenson's gaze lingered on Landis a few seconds longer than it should have, making Landis wonder if the man was gay. Not that he cared. It was just a damned unusual look. Blanchard around? Mary asked. 
Stevens pointed at the shore where another large group of passengers and ship workers were milling about. Ragic, one of the performers made a big fuss while we were away about seeing a ship. The big guy's over there looking for it. No one else saw anything. My guess is the check imagined it. Thanks, Landis said. No problem. Have any papaya yet? Not yet, but I will. Good. You really should. It's incredible. Stevens peered down at a stack of the untouched fruit on the ground and seemed to forget all about Landis. Landis laced his fingers in Mary's, which surprised and delighted her, and they wandered towards the shore. They found Blanchard standing with his feet in the water and his focus on the distant horizon. Morgan stood next to him, munching on the yellow-green fruit. See anything, Dave? Landis queried, letting go of Mary's hand. Blanchard shrugged. Doubt there's anything to see. A few meters away, a shirtless man with dark hair and a goatee kicked angrily at the water. I saw, I tell you, he shouted. I know ship, and this was ship. Blanchard inhaled and indicated the bonfire that raged about 80 yards down the beach, the signal fire they had erected shortly after washing ashore. Nikolai, I don't know what you saw. A ship in the area would have seen the smoke from our fire and would have come to investigate. Screw you, not captain, Rajik said. I know what I see. Blanchard waved a dismissive hand at the performer and faced Landis who preempted any questions by saying they hadn't found anything else. Blanchard looked relieved. He gave Landis a thumbs up and headed back towards Stephen's group. Getting hungry again. Gonna have some more fruit. Morgan remained where he was, eyes on the sea, papaya juice oozing down his chin. Landis and Mary joined hands once more, and Landis led her back to his favorite dune. Remounting it, they peered out at the vast glittering ocean. The waves kept rolling in from infinity, approaching and receding, approaching and receding. Slish, slosh, slish, slosh. Okay, if we just chill for a bit and watch to see if maybe that Nikolai guy is right. Part of me hopes he is, and part of me hopes he isn't. Sure, Landis said, knowing what she meant. He put his arm around her, and together they contemplated the island's various mysteries. Day gave way to evening, and no ship came. When it got dark, most of the hundred-plus survivors migrated to the makeshift shelters they had finished building earlier. Some gathered under the tent-like canopies, while others broke into smaller clusters and erected campfires to huddle around. Here and there, papayas were eaten. Landis and Mary joined a cluster that included Lou Moncrief, two newlywed couples, the Elkies and the Joneses, the ship's entire dance crew, and a couple of chefs. The conversation was mostly light, with topics ranging from what life was like working on a cruise ship to expectations for the upcoming election. It drifted into serious territory when Moncrief brought up the amount of people who had died in the ship's explosions, but soon enough gravitated back to lighter fare. Eventually, Landis and Mary said their goodnights and wandered back to their dune, where they snuggled close, fooled around some, and talked about how ridiculous things had turned out. Sunken cruise ship, deserted island, odd skeleton pit, heated little romance. It was the stuff of corny novels. 
a tale no one would believe in twenty years. Above, a million stars shone bright in the onyx sky. Hey, Mary, Landis whispered as they gazed up at them. Yes, Brendan? I'm glad Random Chance put us on the same cruise ship. Crazily enough, I'm glad too. He kissed her on the lips, and together they drifted off to sleep. They woke to the sound of a man shouting. It was Nikolai Radjik. He was on the shore again, pointing at the horizon. I tell you! See? Landis and Mary sat up in unison. Dozens of others had already wandered to the beach to see what the ruckus was about. They all had their eyes on the object that had Radjik in a frenzy. A large gray ship idling half a mile from shore. Soon everyone was on the beach, gawking at the vessel. Radjik sought Blanchard out and clapped in the big man's face. See, he said, is a ship. Blanchard, who was actually stripped down to his tidy whities with his paunch hanging over the brief's waistband, put his hands on his wide hips and frowned. Can you tell what it is, he said. No flag. Portuguese, maybe. He let out a strange laugh. <laughs> but see those giant barrels jutting from the starboard side? I think it's a warship. Landis squinted and saw that he was right. Must have been the first to respond to the distress call, Blanchard added. He laughed again and scratched at his chest, which was already reddened from the previous scratching. <laughs> I wonder if they've got any food. Landis glanced around at the crowd and discerned that three-quarters of the others were stripped down to their skivvies as well. Some were fully naked, their genitals out for everyone to see, but none of them seemed to care. In fact, the only ones who appeared to notice the widespread nudity were those like Landis and Mary, who still had the majority of their clothes on. Why are they acting like we're at hedonism too? Mary asked. No idea, Landis said. It dawned on him that all those who'd stripped down were also scratching at themselves as Blanchard was. They were twitching, too, like an army of drug addicts going through withdrawal. Upon hearing Blanchard's mention of food, the unclothed scratchers grew restless, uselessly reaching out for the distant ship, beseeching it to bring them sustenance. A knot formed in Landis's stomach. This was bad. Mary approached one of the female dancers they had sat with the night before, Cheryl, a short-haired bony waif who wore only her panties. She reached out and touched the woman's back. It was hot. My God, Cheryl, you're burning up. The dancer giggled. I could go for a burger right about now. A nice juicy Angus burger. You think they have burgers on that boat out there? I don't know, honey, Mary said looking at Landis. Hopefully. Because <laughs> I could eat about ten of them, I think. Ten, eleven, twelve. <laughs> Landis went over to Blanchard and put his hand on the man's arm. It was radiating with fever heat. Not taking his eyes off the boat, Blanchard said, Hey, buddy, you see the ship? You see it there? A ship came after all. He sounded high. Yeah, Landis said. Pretty exciting. <laughs> Only if they have food. And why wouldn't they? Landis squeezed Blanchard's warm shoulder. 
then trotted back to the shore and motioned for Mary to come with him to the water, where they both rinsed their hands. What are we doing? Mary asked. They're sick, Landis said, keeping his voice down. It looks serious. Come on. Together they hurried over to where the shelter stood. Remnants of snacked upon papayas were scattered everywhere. Maybe it's the fruit, Landis said. Mary deliberated what he was saying. You think it's toxic? Or infected with some sort of bug. In college, I studied microbiology as a minor and learned a little about bacteria, viruses, parasites, and fungi. That crap can get into just about anything, fruit included. Usually, you see signs of the infection in the fruit, but not always. So this is like a megapotent form of food poisoning or something? Or something. Three of the clothed non-scratchers spotted Landis and Mary and broke away from the beach. Two men and a woman. Landis didn't know their names. Hey, guys, the first man said, jogging towards them. He was older with silver hair and a George Hamilton tan. I, I think there might be a problem with the papaya. The second man, who was much younger than the first, and who seemed betrothed to the woman with them, said, People who ate it ain't acting right. Look, they're all naked. We didn't eat any, the woman said. Did you? No, Landis and Mary replied in unison. A loud collective cry of pain erupted then from the mouths of all the scratchers. When it stopped, every one of them collapsed to the sand. Left standing there were a dozen more fully clothed non-scratchers, others like them who Landis deduced had not touched the tainted fruit. Half of the dozen, out of confusion and fear, fled to where Landis's group stood. The other six began tending to the fallen, endeavoring to stir them. Landis ran over to see if he could help. They breathing? He asked one of those who had stayed. A man recognized as one of the casino's card dealers. Are their hearts beating? Casino guy looked up at Landis. Yes to both. They're hot as hell, but they seem okay. Just unconscious. Dude, any idea what did this? Landis relayed the bad fruit theory to him. The guy molded over and let out an empty laugh. <laughs> of all the tropical islands in the ocean, we wash up on the one with the fucked up papaya. And a pit full of human skeletons, Landis said. What? Casino guy said. Landis filled him in on their grim discovery. Good heavens, where the fuck are we? Wish I knew. Landis transferred his gaze to the ominous ship. Though it was hard to tell from this distance, he believed he detected activity on deck. He wasn't sure if that was good or bad. A wet slapping sound brought his attention back to the beach. He saw that all the fallen bodies were now convulsing and flopping around like fish in the sand. White foam frothed from their mouths, and a low staccato keening noise emanated from their throats. Casino guy cried out in fright and jumped back. Landis retreated to the shelters and took Mary's hand. Casino guy and the five others who had been tending to the bodies followed suit. Questions abounded as to what to do and the only thing any of them felt comfortable with was waiting and seeing. The convulsions went on for two or more minutes before abruptly stopping. Should we go and see if they're okay? Before anyone could answer, a number of the fallen sat up. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. 
You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The rest also moved, but in strange ways. Some rolled onto their bellies. Some lifted a leg or an arm or both as if experimenting with their use. The ones who sat up started doing the same. Landis noted that all of them had their eyes open and that their expressions were either slack or twitchy. Ignoring the sheer bizarreness of this development, the red-haired woman bounded over to the spastic bodies. She knelt next to a teenage girl who had no clothes on. The girl was sitting up and staring blankly ahead. Red hair asked her something and the girl's head jerked towards her. To Landis, the girl's eyes looked devoid of life. Contradicting this, the girl smiled at Red hair, or rather, her lips peeled back, exposing her teeth. At the same time, one of her arms flailed up and its claw-like hand seized hold of Red hair's locks. Red hair asked the girl what she was doing. The girl responded by biting into Red hair's face and pulling away a sizable chunk of her right cheek. Blood sprang from the wound and the poor woman screamed. Casino guy was the first to react, sprinting over to Red hair and attempting to pry the naked teen's arm away. The girl wouldn't let go, so he punched her in the face. The blow knocked the girl back, causing her to rip a large tuft from Red Hair's head. Red Hair screamed again. Casino Guy hauled the bleeding woman to her feet and hurried her back to the others. Landis removed the shirt and pressed it against her ruined face. Across the beach, the rest of the fallen started to rise. By degrees, they got onto their hands and knees before elevating onto shaky legs. Several stumbled and fell as they rose, but in time they all managed to stand. Once upright, they turned their sights on each other. An eerie moment followed where they all appeared to size each other up. Then pandemonium erupted. Everyone attacked everyone. It was like one of those massive WWE Royal Rumbles, except the violence was real. Biting seemed the most prevalent form of attack, with teeth tearing at flesh everywhere you looked. Blood spurted in rivers. 
Tanned older guy scurried into the jungle and signaled for the rest of the non-fruit eaters to join him. Landis believed it was the wisest move and ushered 26 of them into the trees. Why the hell are they killing each other? Mary asked frantically. <laughs> Whatever infected them turned them rabid, Landis said. Red hair released a loud moan. My face! That fucking bitch! Landis told her to hush, believing it crucial for them to stay off the fruit eater's radar. He passed this notion on to the others and they all concurred. None of them wanted to end up like red hair. Hidden within a thicket of palm leaves, they watched in horror as the fruit eaters went at each other like starved animals, inflicting gruesome wounds. Here and there, Landis saw a penis bitten off or a breast torn away, but it was the faces that seemed to take the worst punishment. After a few minutes, there wasn't a fruit eater out there that didn't have at least some portion of their countenance removed. Blanchard, who bore a myriad of red gashes, no longer had a nose or ears. Not that it fazed him at all. He was going through the other fruit eaters like a wrecking ball, plucking muscle and skin off passing bodies as if they were rotisserie chickens. Why aren't any of them going down? Tangai asked. It was a damned good question, thought Landis. The damage most of them had suffered was more than enough to put a normal person out of commission for months. Yet there they all stood, battered and bloodied, but still ticking like ghastly energizer bunnies. We gotta get out of here, Casino guy said. No fucking shit, Landis said. But where? The lifeboats, Tangai declared. We could hop on a couple and head out to that ship. Landis considered the suggestion. The four surviving lifeboats were anchored just offshore, beyond where the signal fire burned. They were secured by long ropes tying them to trees in the jungle. He imagined it wouldn't be too hard to swim out to them, get them started. After that, he wasn't so sure motoring out to the warship was the best plan. The fact it hadn't moved any closer troubled him. Landis communicated this to the others. Oh, who cares? The tan guy said. Look, I, I get it's a mean-looking boat with guns and shit, but so what? It's not like they're going to shoot a bunch of tourists. A number of the others murmured in agreement. Okay, Landis said, wholly unsure that being a tourist offered them any sort of armor. It's the best we got. Let's do it then. They crept through the jungle, making as little noise as possible. Red hair kept Landis's shirt pressed to her face and stuffed a clump of it into her mouth to muffle her cries. When they reached the signal fire, they discussed who would get on what boat and who would drive. There'd be one group of twelve, one group of thirteen. Both groups would swim out at the same time in case their presence drew the fruit eaters. Ready, everyone, Tangai said. They all nodded. He counted to three and they went. The fruit eaters immediately took notice and came shambling up the shoreline. Their movements were stiff and they seemed unaware of how to run. Landis's group had already made it to their lifeboat by the time the bloody horde reached a signal fire. Curiously, none of the fruit eaters pursued them into the water. They just stood on the shore staring, a collective bloody mess littered with oozing wounds open fractures, and mutilated flesh. Some were still chewing on things. They're just standing there. Fine with me, Landis replied. 
Tangai led the other group. His twelve boarded their boat faster than Landis's people and quickly got their engine running. Landis told them to go on ahead, they'd be along in a minute. Tangai concurred and set off towards the warship. A scraggly bearded guy named Ellis volunteered to run Landis's boat. It took a few tries, but the old-timer finally got the motor to kick on. As he backed the boat up to turn it, Mary went to the starboard side and watched Tangai's lifeboat. It was already a quarter of the way to the warship. Landis watched with her. After a few seconds, he tensed up and grabbed her arm. Christ, Mary, look at the ship! One of the vessel's turrets rotated toward Tangai's lifeboat and leveled off its two large barrels. A heartbeat later, and Tangai's lifeboat exploded into a million pieces. Ellis cursed and banked their boat hard left. They killed them! Mary yelled. Landis saw that the smoking turret was changing direction, aiming for their boat. He yelled for Ellis to go as fast as they could. Yeah, what the fuck do you think I'm doing? Ellis yelled back. The guns fixed on them. Landis's heart froze. He wondered if being blown apart would hurt. Seconds passed, then a few more. But no whump came. What are they waiting for? Red hair murmured, pus dribbling down her chin. As if in reply, the sound of propellers roared above them. Landis looked up and saw what looked like a small military transport plane flying overhead. He darted to the port side of the lifeboat and tracked the aircraft as it hurtled off into the distance, then curled back toward the island. When it reached the island, its cargo bay door opened and a gel-like liquid poured from the opening, raining down on the jungle. It was a nasty-smelling substance. Its petrol odor powerful enough to burn Landis's nostrils. Once the transport plane finished dumping its payload, it veered off to the east. It did not make another pass. Landis's boat had somehow reached the nearest end of the island. It appeared they diverted blowing up long enough to escape. As Landis thought this, however, he heard another loud thwomp. He'd expected to feel the force of a mighty blast, but instead a tall arc of fire leapt up from the center of the jungle, and the island's core burst into flames. Landis peered at the beach and saw that the fruit eaters were shambling along the shoreline after his boat, their bodies ablaze. The ship people knew about the fruit, Landis muttered. Mary clung to his arm. Are we going to end up like the others? Landis glanced back at the warship. Its turret had not followed them. I don't know. Mary nuzzled in close and wept. Landis wept with her. Behind them, red hair collapsed to the floor and started convulsing. The captain of the Moroccan destroyer stood within the ship's conning tower, his binoculars trained on the escaping lifeboat. He felt terrible for the people aboard. He hated what he had already done to their companions and what he was further compelled to do to them. They knew it was bacteria-based, what festered inside the fruit, and that the fruit looked and tasted like papaya, but technically wasn't. They also knew the trees upon which the fruit grew were resilient beyond comprehension. No matter what chemical they used, 
it always grew back. What they didn't know, because it was strict policy not to remove any samples from the island, was how to treat against the infection once it entered a host. It was the captain's charge to make sure they never had to find out. It was also his charge to make sure the rest of the world remained oblivious to its existence. Since the late 1600s, when the island was first discovered, it had been upon an Alawite descendant's shoulders to keep the place a secret. Thus far, every one of them had succeeded. The captain had no intention of being the first to fail. After a moment of contemplation, he lowered his binoculars and nodded to his executive officer. The executive lifted his handheld communicator and gave the order. Send a team. No survivors. The amphibious raft sped away from the warship and rounded the end of the island in pursuit of Landis's lifeboat. The team manning the raft spotted the lifeboat immediately. It sat not even a hundred meters offshore, and it was barely moving, as if the engine had stalled. The officer leading the strike team directed the navigator to make the standard approach, 30 meters from the stern, all weapons hot. The navigator positioned the raft as instructed. The officer surveyed the boat but saw no sign of the passengers. Assuming they were hiding on the floor, he commanded his team to open fire. The team first riddled the lifeboat with small arms fire then pummeled it with the grenade launchers. When they were done, very little remained of the boat. The strike team maintained their position for several minutes after the last bits of the lifeboat vanished beneath the surface. Satisfied no one had survived, the lead officer signaled to the navigator to turn the raft around and to return to their ship. Before the navigator could act, however, a woman-like creature with red hair sprang up from the water and crawled onto the raft. Its mouth latched onto one of the men's legs. The officer pulled out his 45 and shot the creature in the neck. The bullet had no effect. The creature lunged at a different man and caught his arm in its mouth. The officer fired again. The twelve from Landis's boat lay close to the shore with their bodies immersed in ocean and their heads barely poking out of the water. It had been Landis's idea to abandon the boat and swim back to the island once they were out of sight, hoping the boat would work as a decoy. An idea made easier once Red Hair turned rabid and attacked their group. It seemed the infection propagated at a highly accelerated rate if transmitted via a bite casino guy got it worst. She had eaten his face and voice box and left him there to suffer in silent agony. From their half-hiding positions, they watched in horror as the strike team unleashed its assault on their lifeboat. As the vessel came apart at the seams, Landis looked at Mary and told her he was happy they got to enjoy their little adventure together. It's more than some people get, Mary said and kissed him with her bloodied lips. When they looked at the sea again, the people on the amphibious raft were being attacked by something that had emerged from the water. Shots rang out. Screams traveled through the air. Landis wondered what had happened, 
but soon realized Red Hair must have made it to the raft. The vindictive part of him was glad. Do you think whoever bombed the cruise ship knew about this place? Mary asked. Do you think they wanted to expose it to the world? Or expose the world to it, Landis said darkly. Motherfuck! Ellis exclaimed, peering to their left. What? Landis asked. The sound had barely registered when the amphibious raft exploded. Landis turned his head and saw the warship rounding the south end of the island. It was much closer now. He could see people standing on the deck holding binoculars. Some pointed at the exploded raft, others at their group. Their not-so-well-hidden group, he thought. He saw the turret with the barrels take aim at them, too. He looked at his left hand, which was missing the pinky and ring finger. He could already feel the microbes going to work on him. He was already itchy and craving meat. Lots and lots of meat. It's for the best, Mary, he said, understanding the warship's purpose. It's for the... And that was Bad Fruit by W.B. Stickle. A good reminder to have a Boy Scout handy next time you get yourself stranded on an island. And if you can't figure out which plants are safe to eat, at least you can toss them to the zombies. A little about the author. W.B. Stickle lives with his family in central New York. By day, he works for the Air Force doing geeky communication stuff. By night, he reads and writes as much as life allows. His short fiction has appeared in over a dozen magazines and anthologies, to include Sanitarium Magazine and the Lovecraft-inspired collection Whispers from the Abyss. His stories have also appeared as podcast episodes on Tales to Terrify, Nocturnal Transmissions, Horror Hill, Drew Blood, and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can follow WB on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash WBStickle. Thanks, WB. I really enjoyed this one, bud. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens, by the way. So feel free to accidentally subscribe as many times as you want. I won't tell anyone, I promise. And if you feel like spreading the word and helping old Drew Blood out and convincing a friend or two to subscribe to my podcast, that would help me out greatly, and I'd really appreciate it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other podcast episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintellsfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program and all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there. 
where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook and Instagram and sometimes Twitter. Sometimes. And remember, we're accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, but don't wander too far from civilization. If we were meant to go walking around remote islands like that, they'd at least have a 7-Eleven or two. I'd like to recognize a couple more of my friends from YouTube. Ann Pickerman, Mix Marquez, I hope I got that right, and my homeboy, Mook the One Man Mafia. What the hell? I really appreciate the comments, y'all. They keep me going, more than you know. So, Ann Pickering, Mix Marquez, and my home skillet, Mook. <laughs> may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Get your produce from only trusted sources, and until next time, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Good night, y'all.